Beth and I immediately saw that a whole new way of doing disaster science was possible. We now had the amount of data computing power in order to start to understand disasters as they're evolving from the sky. And this meant we could now monitor them not just in real time, it meant we could not only be analyzing risk through observation, not simulation or somewhat guesses, it also meant it could be equally accurate everywhere around the world, meaning accessibility, transparency, and really diversifying where risk was happening in different places. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of The Wharton Current. I'm Ned Downey, PhD student in public affairs at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. And today, Ellie McDonald and I were taking the current in a direction that we and I think much of the climate tech community don't talk enough about. That's adaptation. How the world is going to deal with all the ways that life on our globe is changing and will continue to change because the world's getting hotter. That's why we wanted to talk to our guest today. She's Bessie Schwartz. She's CEO and co-founder of Floodbase. They're a climate adaptation technology company. They provide precise, near real-time data and analysis on flooding and flood risk. Now, back in late January, actually the day after we recorded, Floodbase announced a $12 million Series A round led by climate venture giants, Lower Carbon Capital. So it's a big time for them. We're excited to be able to share Bessie's insights on what Floodbase is bringing to flood insurance and disaster management, what it's like to go from being a community organizer to being a startup founder in climate tech, and how adaptation funding as a space has changed since she and her co-founders started working on this company a decade ago. So let's jump right in. All right, hello, this is Ned Downey, PhD student in public affairs at Princeton School of Public International Affairs. And hi, everyone. I'm Ellie McDonald, co-host of The Wharton Current. And we're excited today to be joined by a founder in a new area of climate tech for us, at least, that we haven't covered on this podcast so far. That's adaptation tech. And that founder is Bessie Schwartz. She's CEO and co-founder of Floodbase. It's a climate adaptation technology that provides precise, near real-time data and analysis on flooding and flood risk. They're backed by Lower Carbon Capital, uh, and Bessie's prior experience included founding the consulting arm of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication after she got her Master's of Science degree at Yale. So Bessie, welcome to The Current. It's great to be here. Right on. So I've given a teaser introduction, but tell us more about what brought you here. How did you end up founding Floodbase? Yeah, great. Well, really happy to be here and very excited to be your first climate adaptation tech company. So I've been working on climate change my entire career. What became pretty obvious to me as I was working on climate from a variety of different angles is that we're significantly underinvesting in climate adaptation overall. Adaptation is really the recognition that the planet is already affected by climate change. It's here now. We're seeing massive changes already. But how we respond, how we adjust to those changes will really determine how much loss that these changes to our planet will create in in society. So I really began my career actually working with communities that were affected by climate change. And it was very clear that without the data, or at least access to accurate data about particularly disasters from the more acute effects of climate change, there really was a lack of ability to make these kinds of changes to reduce loss that communities, companies, governments, economies were going to be feeling. So I really went back to school, to grad school, 
in order to look for new data solutions that could make that more accessible, not just to communities advocating for change, but to companies, to governments, to financial institutions that could really do something about it and make these adjustments. And I met my co-founder literally day one of orientation. We <laughs> have been working together for over 10 years now. And Google actually came to Yale a couple of months after that and showed an incredibly early version of what is now called Google Earth Engine, essentially putting satellite imagery onto Google servers and saying, what can you guys do about this? That was a long time ago now, but Beth and I immediately saw that a whole new way of doing disaster science was possible. We now had the amount of data computing power in order to start to understand disasters as they're evolving from the sky. And this meant we could now monitor them not just in real time. It meant we could not only be analyzing risk through observation, not simulation or somewhat guesses, it also meant it could be equally accurate everywhere around the world, meaning accessibility, transparency, and really diversifying where risk was happening in different places. So long story short, we got together with a founding team member, Colin Doyle, and have been really working for the last 10 years to develop a new type of disaster data. And today, that technology is now the basis at Floodbase for a new type of insurance called parametric insurance that enables insurers, reinsurers in order to cover a vastly amount more of flood risk around the world and enable financial protection that's just never been possible before. Yeah, I think that's really exciting to hear. And parametric insurance is taking the world by storm. So hearing that you guys <laughs> have a platform that can do that at scale and can also look across different areas with the same analytical mindset is great. Kind of focusing on your background a little bit here, you've got a bit of a different background from a lot of other founders. You first worked as a community organizer out of college and your mm -hmm. work on FloodBase started in the development space, getting mm -hmm. grants from Google and working with public sector agencies like the World Bank. Mm -hmm. So how do you think that background shapes how you approach your work as a founder today? Yeah. It shapes my background quite a bit, I would say, in two distinct ways. Uh, one, how I just run the business, so how I approach entrepreneurship, actually is quite a bit like an organizer builds power and a collective within a community. But then also, obviously, my kind of theory of change, which I've been approaching climate. The long story short is that you know Beth, my co-founder, and I, and, and then and then Colin, have really been looking at places where data could be a forcing function to build more power to create more protection for vulnerable communities, whether this is leveraging development dollars, whether this is enabling insurers to expand the market, the market that they're looking for to, to new to new people. And to kind of like fast forward back in our journey a little bit at Cloud Street, really as soon as we got started building the algorithm behind a flood base, I'll probably mess that up a couple of times throughout this conversation. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. tell us quickly, by the way, the you, you guys are in a rebrand, right? You've just gone from cloud to street to flood base. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So yeah, just a little bit ago, we went from kind of our core original uh, name, cloud to street, which really represents the foundation of what we built to flood base. That's representing kind of the next phase of the solution around parametric flood insurance. That's great. We'll, we'll get back to that transition more later on, but I just wanted to set it up. Yeah, so we sort of 
going back in time, we originally were building this algorithm really to fill in information gaps where flood data just was not accessible or available, like literally times during a flood where we just didn't know where it was, at least in an objective and transparent way. We had seen this affect disaster aid responses in Sandy in the US, internationally with some of the work Beth had done in, in Latin America. And we started building this with Google, with research awards from Google after they had come to show us early version of their platform. And very quickly, the World Bank and others who do development work internationally, representing mostly national governments doing response, said we really need to fill these gaps to help with responses in countries that just don't have, have very little access. And so that was a lot of the work that we had done for the first couple of years, really bootstrapped on those types of contracts. But over the years, filling these gaps, we were able to sit with national disaster management agencies around the world and they'd say, okay, now I have the information to know I need to go save that community right there that I can see in the dashboard is flooded or that community clearly needs to be relocated. We now can see that. With what extra money do you expect me to take these new actions to do this adaptation work, whether it's immediate response to a disaster or it's a long-term risk reduction. And we're like, okay, we don't solve the financing problem, but clearly that is essential. You cannot just hand people data, no matter how much support and training you're you're giving them. Um, And yet at the same time, we had also had insurers for years coming to us to say, we've never seen data of this quality in these places or for this type of risk, even if it's in the U.S., where there's a fairly robust market. And so we really, over the last two years or so, put two and two together on, on both of those in order to build the market and help reduce the flood protection gap. Great. So then let, and let's jump right then back to what this what what you guys are providing to fill that gap. So what you talk we've talked some about parametric insurance, how it's growing, how you guys are mm-hmm. applying that to flood insurance. What is what is parametric insurance and how are you guys bringing that to this market where it wasn't before? Yeah, great, great question. So I think that story really starts with the fact that flooding in particular is really underprotected and uninsured. About 83% of flood losses were uninsured in the last decade. That's a Swiss re number. So we just need more flood insurance, period. This is about complementing what works already, but filling clearly huge amounts of gaps in what we're able to cover today via insurers. So parametric is really well suited to that since it's essentially a remote form of underwriting and then payout. Parametric insurance is really based on having a parameter a objective uh, data source that determines whether or not an event has happened and then provides the payout based on that event rather than an adjuster coming to your door to assess property damage. So the event, not your damage, is being actually insured. Sounds simple, but it really depends on how high quality and accuracy and precision you can get with that data, with that data source. So flood-based is that data for flooding. Um, the, we have an end-to-end solution for insurers and brokers to basically underwrite a variety of types of insurance policies. It's anywhere from your typical sort of large corporate property holding anywhere in the world. We do everything from sort of like large facilities in China to resorts in Mexico. We also do entire countries, so sovereign risk or sovereign debt, where a country can literally take out a policy for when a disaster happens. 
get a payout or even get debt relieved in some some of them, or portfolios of residents where you could get maybe small payout as soon as the disaster happens, a couple thousand dollars to maybe you'd evacuate, et cetera, right as it happens and just release that for everybody in the community where we've detected a disaster. So those are just a couple of examples. But what's going on under the hood in our data solution is really two things that our technology is able to uniquely do. The first of the two is mapping floods anywhere in the world in mural time with high levels of accuracy. This is used to monitor the policies that have been underwritten and then trigger payouts when the payout threshold has been, been met. The second is to run our flood detection map algorithms back in time to measure historical patterns of flood risk. That is used to price and structure the policies accurately, again, with the same data source. There's high fidelity between, between them. All of this happens within this solution. And we work pretty closely with some of the leading brokers, insurers, and reinsurers to really design policies on top of this that are right for them and, and their customers. That's really helpful background because, you know, as you mentioned, this is a very new technology and a new form mm-hmm. of insurance. And more generally, talking about the flood insurance market, the U.S. government has government-sponsored flood insurance. Mm-hmm. So can you walk us through a little bit further what private flood insurance does mm-hmm. on top of that? Absolutely. So the U.S. flood insurance market is fascinating and quite unique. And flood insurance actually. I think it's quite unique within the U.S. economy. As you mentioned, the National Flood Insurance Program is a fully public insurance program that is the vast majority of flood insurance in this country. It's subsidized by the government. So the NFIP has some real advantages. Sorry, and just want to flag really quickly, Bessie, for any of our listeners that aren't familiar with that acronym, would you mind just clarifying what the NFIP stands for? Oh, yeah. The National Flood Insurance Program run by FEMA, our Federal Emergency Management Agency. Um, (laughs) Thank you. So is subsidized insurance that is also required for certain homes and small businesses within the, the country. So a number of gaps that parametric insurance can fill is, I'll actually just point out really two very concrete ones. One, NFIP, the National Flood Insurance Program policies are traditional, what's called indemnity insurance, where the person with the clipboard comes to your door. That can take a while, especially if there's something really big that's affecting a ton of people in a particular area. So Hurricane Ian, where we're still filing claims from, or something like Hurricane Harvey that hit, and then very shortly after, Hurricane Maria hit, right? after. So all the adjusters were in Houston when then they had to suddenly go all the way to to Puerto Rico, and there's a huge crunch, huge time delay, and then those can also get caught up in litigation if you're fighting what the claim came in at, what the adjuster said your actual damage was. Parametric insurance can trigger almost immediately as soon as the event is detected. In some cases, you can do beforehand as the forecast is coming. And generally, they are done to give you, often in complement with that more traditional form, to give you some form of cash, some liquidity, right as the event happened, which can be really critical for a company or an individual or a government. Let's say you need to evacuate, but you just don't have that much in your savings. Let's say you know medical supplies are more costly because 
of supply chain in the particular, and you just need money at that moment critically. And that is a really important moment in a, in a business or really any entity where you're deciding, okay, do I go into debt? Do I dip into my savings? Do I sell off assets right now? Because I just need the money in this, you know, sometimes most desperate moment in someone's life. So getting at least a little bit very quickly can be incredibly important. The other thing is the transparency is really valuable for a lot of folks. So rather than having just, you know, a person come assess the property damage and do their assessment of, of looking at it and then you fight them or, or whatever has real advantages over parametric, but this is incredibly straightforward. They're, you know, it's sometimes just eight page contracts that are not that hard to read. And the actual equation, the flood based equation, how we are actually going to be determining whether or not you deserve a payout is in many ways written into that contract. So it's all very transparent and you know if you're going to get it or not. You can see the statistics. You can see the maps, the flood maps of your property, of your community that the payout is coming from. So those are two huge advantages that actually often make parametric flood insurance a really great complement to add into a more traditional indemnity insurance program like what the uh, government in the U.S. offers. Got it. And out of curiosity, because of that transparency, Mm -hmm. are the claims or the insurance amounts provided by parametric smaller than traditional claim filed insurance? Or because of the data, is it equitable just in a different time frame? Um, it's it's pretty flexible. So it can span the entire spectrum. And so it can go from, you know, really these kind of micro claims, it's a thousand dollars payout. It can also go up to things that are like a a reinsurance program that is an entire country getting hundreds of millions of dollars in their payout. So it is it is very flexible and it also can be a really big complement of a variety of different types of transactions. There's something called insurance linked securities that is a sort of like in insurance as a, a risk transfer program, often done through a parametric. And I'll give you sort of one additional interesting thing about parametric is that because it can happen at these large scales because flood base, for instance, can map every inch of flooding in the U.S. at this very moment. It actually is raining outside my window right now. We can tell you how big a national disaster is or how big a flood is over, let's say, California. We are actually mapping those floods every single day across the entire state. We're actually doing it ag- hourly, but we aggregated it to, to the day. Uh, because of that, you can underwrite policies that are payouts to an entire state really transparently and see that. And those can be huge, huge policies. You've been talking about the U.S. context in particular here, but earlier you alluded to how your guys' potential market is pretty global. How do you guys think about geography at this stage? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I I get this a lot, actually, because I think it's actually simpler than it seems like. Our product is fully global. The product is extremely accurate everywhere in the world. And so we don't specialize or differ really in geographies at all. We have brokers coming to us like with deals they want us to help them underwrite. In you know, we had a couple from Asia yesterday. We're working on things in the US. We've already got stuff here. So it's really not a restriction for us, which I think is a huge advantage. A as we build the market and we can enable policies and people, places, governments all over the world to do it. And as we think about the importance of diversifying risk 
as risk gets just much greater. So when it's flooding in Thailand, it's often not flooding in Minnesota. And it's really useful to be able to balance those and diversify the risk across them. The thing we are laser focused on is really this scientific capabilities that we are developing that are essential for parametric flood insurance and making sure that there's as accurate as possible, as validated as possible, as transparent as possible. And that's what gives the insurers, reinsurers, and brokers confidence in underwriting it anywhere in the world. So we're pretty focused on certain types of financial instruments. And that's been the way we've focused so far. The other thing I will say, just to think about your last question, is we continue to also have a large portion of our company supporting governments directly with uh, disaster management and response. It is, in many ways, the same exact data stream that the insurers use. They're monitoring and using the flood near real-time maps to determine when payouts are needed. The governments around the world, and this is also fully global, and we've got governments at home, we've got governments internationally that use it to do search and rescue, to determine where aid is needed as quickly as possible, and to do zoning, relocating communities are things that governments have used it for quite a bit. So it's the same product, and that's also very international. We see the disaster risk reduction work that governments have been doing with our product for years as really in complement with the newer work that Floodbase has been doing over the last two years with the insurance industry. You know, Bessie, that's a perfect segue for our next question. We know you're focused on parametric flood insurance. We've been talking about it all episode. But as you mentioned, Floodbase seems to have three different use cases. So risk analysis, emergency disaster response, and parametric flood insurance. So can you elaborate on the other two use cases a little bit and those target markets? And then also how all three product use cases Mm. intersect? Yeah, definitely. Uh, So we're really proud of the work that we've done with governance. That's what we started with. And as we built the technology over the last 10 years, we also were simultaneously supporting governments around the world. And we we bootstrap that for large part. That work has been used by about 32 governments, primarily the national disaster management agencies around the world. And then in collaboration, we have a great partnership with the UN globally. I mentioned the World Bank. Give Directly is a, a great new partner of ours internationally as well. So what we've really done there is help the international governments and the development community get access to better information and get it into places through the government, through the public sector, to help them improve their response times and their risk management processes. So maybe I'll give just one very quick example of this and and then kind of expand out to how these things really, I think, will complement each other and will come together in kind of the future of climate resilience. So let's take the kind of a very different example than our typical, but in the Republic of the Congo. So this is a middle low income country in in Africa where five or six years ago came to us because they had very little flood data across the country. So in I believe it was 2017, a medium-sized flood hit a northern part of the national government and the UN didn't know about it for about three weeks. And at that point, there were thousands of people who were without food and had got turned into a major national disaster. It was declared they responded. So they came to us to say, could you reduce these response times and help us out? And we, a year later, were scanning the entire country every single day to detect floods. We were triggering them and sending alerts when 
small floods were happening. Nothing major happened until a couple months later, I believe this is 2019 now, when a series of asylum seekers came into the Republic of the Congo, settled in a few different areas, and then the water started to rise kind of on the river around them. The government came to us and, and, and the platform and said, um, are these areas at risk? Do we need to relocate these communities? And basically found that the one where about 7,000 of the asylum seekers had settled into was actually at high risk. It was starting to pond. The river was was rising. And they actually used that data to support the relocation of the asylum seekers to a different area. Within 10 months, it was actually the next rain season, a massive flood across the country basically destroyed that entire area where, where they had they had been. So we really avoided what could have easily been a much larger humanitarian issue there. And you know, now we've been, we're going on our fifth or sixth year collaborating with the UN and the and the government there. What we hope to layer in in the future in the Congo and in many of the circumstances where we're working with the, the national government or more local governments is a financial policy. So an insurance policy or some other kind of financial instrument that can then also give them the finances they need to then take this extra work of moving this community and then fortifying those areas or then thinking about the next communities that they have. And so we, we know that insurers are actually very excited about doing these public sector style insurance. There's been a huge success of it actually in Africa and the Caribbean and a, a bit in Asia as well. And that same exact kind of financial instrument can be powered on the system we have in the Congo that's just monitoring the country every single day, knowing if it's flooding, if it's bad, if something needs to happen. Let's go back to something we kind of teased earlier, which is you guys announcing some big news, right? And we're recording right around that, which is $12 million Series A from Lower Carbon Capital. You've rebranded and you've got some new products around parametric flood insurance. Tell us about that fundraising process, what you guys learned, and any mm -hmm. advice you might have for other founders trying to raise money in today's economic climate. Okay. Bunch of big questions. With the, the toughest one, I have to say, at the end there in some ways. We're super proud of the, the Series A that we recently announced, led by Lower Carbon Capital, could not be prouder to be working with those guys. I really think they're the cutting edge and were incredibly insightful in the beginning and how to invest in climate tech. They were a small investor during our seed round, and they were really excited. We were really excited for them to step up and help get us the capital to scale flood-based to really create the parametric flood insurance market over the next two years. So to their first question, we've got some exciting plans that are already well underway to build the team. We're actually going to be mostly building the go-to-market team. So we're looking for account executives. We're looking for product marketing folks, a bunch of other jobs on our site. Got to have that plug. But really excited to continue to build really on our world-class go-to-market team to complement the awesome team of machine learning scientists, hydrologists, et cetera. And then to really scale the product with the insurers, brokers, and reinsurers who were collaborating with already to some of the kinds of cool things we talked about on this podcast. So really exciting stuff in the two years to come. It's a really interesting time to raise to those of you out there who are thinking about it or, you know, God bless in the middle of it. We set out to raise, we actually hit our Series A kind of the milestones we were looking out for a bit early. 
So we had some flexibility on when we were going to go out and we went out right as things were starting to turn. So we definitely did raise in this environment, but I would say at the very beginning of it. So this is sort of like the late spring-ish that we did it. We closed the raise a bit ago, but we're waiting for this rebrand and a few other things to announce it. The most tried and true advice that I always really stick to is trying to, as much as possible, to have a really authentic relationship with the VCs that you end up taking money from as you go through the process. It's pretty tricky, frankly, on both sides because there's so much gamemanship, frankly, in the raise process. But every investor who we have brought on, the partnership just felt right from both sides. The business model, the way that they wanted to grow the company, the vision that we have, the vision that they have seemed very aligned. And I think that enabled me to have authentic conversations as we were raising and be really clear about what we were trying to build, about this thing, frankly, the strengths of the company, the challenges of the company. And then that has laid a really strong foundation between us. And definitely this is the case with our carbon, but collaborative funds, floating point partners are kind of newest investors with Edvidavo. And it has enabled us to then, I think, between the seed and the A, have our investors really help us think about the new folks that we wanted to bring on and then also really convince like everybody came back in, everybody was really involved on my investor team with who we were going to bring in next and helping to get them on. And I think this was really important to me because we're such a mission-focused company to have really open, transparent relationships with them, but became really essential when things got hard in the market to have that level of so depth in my relationship with my existing investors when we then brought on the next ones. And I'm very confident in our relationship with the new folks that came around the, around the room during the Series A. Yeah, that's so huge. And also, you know, congratulations. The Series A is a big deal in any, any climate <laughs> and particularly in this one. As Ned touched on earlier in the podcast, one of the reasons we were so excited to have you on is because you're in the adaptation space, an area we haven't really covered as much, probably should be covering it more. It deserves the time. But what's been your experience starting a company in this space, in adaptation in particular? And do you think funders and founders are paying enough attention to adaptation? Mm. And how has that changed since yeah. you started working on Floodbase, you know, as you mentioned quite a few years ago? Yeah, great question. So it has changed dramatically over the time we've been working on Floodbase. So again, we've been developing this for 10 years now, so it has been quite a time. The scientific world has changed a, a ton. And then even attention to climate as an issue, climate tech in particular, has changed a lot in the last two or three years. I actually really give Lower Carbon and, and Chris Saka and, and his team a lot of credit for, for this. In terms of how investors are looking at it, the difference between our seed, our Series A, and then now has been really stark. So we raised our seed in spring 2021. Every single pitch I did, I would say, before we get started, when you say climate tech, do you mean adaptation? Like, is this mitigation or sequestration? Or do you include adaptation? Like, no offense if you don't. And pretty much I got the same response every time, which was, yeah, yeah, we we do that. I, I feel like <laughs> yeah, probably we should, right? And uh, and then 
you know, we really had to, frankly, educate folks on what it meant about what insurance and risk transfer actually is and how it's not just, quote, making money on the problem, which some great investors we work with with told us they thought it was going into the into the conversation. So that was the state of things, I would say, in 2021. And I think remain there for for a while. During our seed, or sorry, Series A, it was much more, we know we want to do adaptation. We're even seeing funds start to pop up that specialize in adaptation, which is pretty, which is pretty cool. Uh, so folks knew they wanted it, but there still, I think, is a lot of uncertainty around what climate adaptation really is and what the technology is that can be behind it. I think some of this is that the scientific community is frankly just starting to catch up with actually being able to deliver on some of the analytics that we know the business world really needs. There's a lot more that needs to happen here, but the academic world does, you know, we need to push that science even further to get to what the need is and the promises that some folks are are making out there. So I actually think we started really towards the end of 2022. And I, I even feel now there is a much more sophisticated understanding of what climate adaptation is, what the data is that we need behind it, the real like wealth of data, the diversity of types of data. We just do one very small part of it. We just really just map in floods, like looking at where floods are today, going back in time. Like that's all we do. That's what parametric insurance is, but it's very small. And then the importance of financing on top of this. This was it really, I think, clearly the major conversation at the last large climate UN conference, the COP27, with you know loss and damages courts, a financial instrument to help get vulnerable countries who didn't create the problem money. But also, I think Prime Minister Mia Motley's work, if folks aren't familiar with this, with the Bridgetown Initiative on how to change how we do loans and development is, I think, fundamentally important for climate adaptation, how we finance a lot of this stuff, how we think about debt in the age of climate or sovereign debt in the age of climate change. So I think there's some really exciting stuff happening. And as the world gets investors and financial institutions and academics get more sophisticated about the commerce for what climate adaptation is, I think we're going to start to just see really an exponential increase in more cool solutions out there. Yeah, I mean, it seems like what you're kind of setting up is that adaptation is a huge sprawling space because yes. change affects pretty much everything in our lives, right? So, I mean, is totally. it even right for us to think of adaptation as a space or should we start to be thinking of it in a more segmented fashion that reflects just the diversity of issues that are bound mm. up in adaptation? Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. And I haven't even... I have gotten that far in my own thinking of whether or not that would be valuable. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, the diversity that I really see as necessary is really, I think, like twofold. So when it comes to adaptation and lots of the other types of climate solution, you have to understand the financial change that needs to happen, the capital that needs to become available at different times. We're obviously quite focused on that. The data that's required, the politics and regulation that's required, the social and cultural change. So I think that thinking of the diversity of these various kind of vectors that we need to move along to just enable changes is really important. And then I do think that breaking adaptation down, at least in our world, by the disaster cycle for short term and then long term slow onset, like maybe even a drought or a sea level rise and then a, a fast onset a disaster like a hurricane or a flood, like what we saw in California, really thinking of the disaster cycle and there's different actions you need to be able to 
finance, have regulation around, social cultural change around. Now I'm like really diversifying in all sectors and getting very complicated as I want to do. But think of even just take a flood. There's before the flood, how can we reduce risk? How can we raise buildings? How can we fortify it? How can we move communities? How can we pre-position aid before the disaster? Immediately before, this is kind of early warning, getting people out of the way, that helps quite a bit too. In the response, immediately after, search and rescue, immediate aid, insurance to make sure that people don't sell off assets, fall into poverty, those kinds of things, and then recovery and the cycle starts again. And so there's very different types of solutions at that level. So I honestly could keep going on on the various ways to slice and dice this. So I think it's an interesting idea to potentially break it up into various sectors with different types of technologies and data and financial instruments for them. But frankly, for now, I'll just take more of a sophisticated understanding about climate adaptation as a sector and a festival opportunity overall. <laughs> Fair enough. For any of our listeners that, you know, this is the first time hearing about the adaptation space, do you have any secondary resources they can read or listen to to get a better personal understanding? Yes. Wow. Okay. Great question. So I guess I would recommend three books. Books just really come to mind here. So Alice Hill wrote a fantastic book about a year ago about climate adaptation after COVID-19. And so I think really thinking about how much we as a world rethought risk after the massive pandemic basically shut down the world and how much that cost or lack of preparation for pandemic cost. So I think there's a lot of learnings that she talks about in her book. There's a fantastic new book called Understanding Disaster Insurance. I believe that actually comes out of, well, former head of the Wharton Risk Center now has, has gone to Environmental Defense Fund, but is really the leading thinker in the way to use insurance to make the world more resilient, what a private insurance can be good for, what it can't be good for, etc. So I really loved that book. And then I'll just maybe mention kind of a fun one, The Ministry of the Future, which probably you guys have read and many folks have read. I mean, he really covers like every element of the problem and the solution. But there are some, I think, really interesting visions of what adaptation can look like and how we create that. And I think apply five, quote unquote, I think can be a really interesting way to push our minds to think about how the world can be different with the types of new changes that folks on your podcast are, are developing. Love it. And to Ministry of the Future, that's Kim Stanley Robinson. Who is the, the second recommendation you have? Yeah, Carolyn Cousy. So the book is Understanding Disaster Insurance. People should go check that out. Perfect. Perfect. We'll put the link in the show notes. These are some great recommendations and a great way to wrap up our show. Thank you so much for joining us today, Bessie. You mentioned you guys are hiring. Tell us more. People want to learn more about what you guys are looking for and what you guys are up to. Where do they go? Yeah, it's been great. Uh, this is a super interesting conversation. We would love for folks, if you're interested in getting into the fight on climate tech and specifically focusing on climate adaptation, please go to floodbase.com. Uh, we've got a couple of open positions that we'd love to talk to you about. Awesome. Thank you so much. Guys, this is Bessie Schwartz with Floodbase. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for the plug. A lot of Wharton students are certainly working <laughs> jobs right now. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Wharton Current. We loved having Bessie Schwartz on from Floodbase. To learn more about adaptation technology within the climate tech space, check out the book she recommended or go to Floodbase's website to learn more about what the company themselves are doing. Join us next time on The Warren Current.